Let's see. Um, I think it's fitting. Now, y'all remember, Ardala had what, what I thought was going to be major heart surgery. Um, she had a five-centimeter aneurysm, and they repaired that on Tuesday. And praise the Lord, look, she's right here today in church. <laughs> Hallelujah. And then Dana had uh, surgery Thursday. And he's here. And so we just thank the Lord for his faithfulness. Amen. And both, both uh, went just the way we prayed that they would go. And so we just thank the Lord for answered prayer. And uh, I believe whenever God brings healing, however he brings it, whether he does it supernaturally or whether he does it by the hand of a doctor, uh, the glory goes to the Lord. Amen. And so, Father, we just thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you, Lord, that you're a God that we can call on. That, Lord, you made a way for us to come boldly and with confidence before the very throne of grace. And, Lord, we thank you that we can do that by the blood of Jesus. We thank you for your love and your mercy this morning. And, Father, we just pray that as we get ready to look into your word, that you'd open our hearts and open our eyes. Open our ears, God, and our minds. And that you would cause the good seed of your word, Lord, to be implanted on the good ground of our heart. And that you would, God, bring an increase of righteous fruit for your glory. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And uh, we began in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 a few number of weeks ago. And we're just kind of continuing to go through. And we've been in Romans and 1 Corinthians, looking at the gifts of the Spirit, and we're in 1 Corinthians 13 now, where Paul is contrasting the gifts of the Spirit with the fruit of the Spirit. And today, specifically, we're going to talk about love. And 1 Corinthians 13 is commonly known as the love chapter, and uh, I always tell people, you know, uh, God didn't put that in the Bible so we could read it at weddings, though it is appropriate to read at a wedding, uh, but that's, that's not the only reason it's appropriate. And so, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul begins in this chapter, and in the first three verses, he makes, he makes this statement. He says, though I speak with the tongues of angels, without love my speech has no meaning. And though I have gifts and abilities and all faith, even that I could remove mountains, Without love, I am nothing. And though I give everything I have and sacrifice all for all, even giving my body to be burned, without love, it profits me nothing. And so, he then begins in verse 4 to describe love. And I want you to understand what Paul is saying here. Love is the byword for the fruit of the Spirit. Love is not one of the fruit. Love is the fruit. Just like Jesus said, the greatest commandment is to love God, to love your neighbor as yourself. In these two all the law and all the prophets. 
And in John 13, 34, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. And we see that all hangs on love. Remember the little song I sang last week? It's uh, from 1 John 4, 7, 8. Beloved, love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Beloved, let us love one another. So in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is teaching much more than just the proper context for the operation of spiritual gifts. Paul is teaching about the foundational nature of love as the indicator of our life in Christ and His life in us. Amen? Remember remember the imagery of John 15. John 15, Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. And He paints this beautiful picture of the branches abiding in the vine, and the vine abiding in the branches. And so this is, this is what Paul is speaking of here. The nature of love as the indicator of God's life abiding in us, and us abiding in Him. And Paul is contrasting fruit with gifts, to reveal to us the foundational reality of love as a manifestation of His life in us, in our life in Him. So love, our love, manifests through our life, is an indicator. Remember we said last week, love is an indicator and a governor. Love is to govern the operation of all the gifts. But more than that, love is the indicator of the life of God. And so love is the indication, it is the manifestation of His life in us and our maturity in Him. Remember, you can plant a fruit tree, you can go to the nursery right now. By by the way, now is a really good time to plant trees. You plant them now, they'll grow through the fall, they'll get established in the winter, and then come springtime, boy, they'll take off. So go to the nursery now and now, you might not want to plant a fruit tree right now because that might, might freeze over the wintertime, but you could plant a nice shade tree right now. And that thing will get established, but, but you might not see too much, right? You're going to plant it right now. It's still hot. It's dry. You're going to have to water it. Wintertime's going to come, and if it's one of those trees that loses its leaves, all the leaves are going to fall off. And you know, if you didn't know what you were looking at, you might think that's just some dead tree there stuck in the ground. But the reality is, you, you, can't, you can't be deceived. You can't always walk by sight, right? You've got to walk by faith. You've got to know. And because you know that that tree's not dead, even though it might look dead, that tree's alive. And come springtime, you're going to see little buds of green coming out on it. And what is that green an indication of? Of life. And if it's a fruit tree, in time, though you might not get fruit the first year, right? But in time, if it's a fruit tree, what's going to come forth? Fruit's going to come forth, and fruit, along with the green, the new green of life, along with that, that fruit is an indication of the life that's in that tree. And so fruit in our life is an indication of God's life in us. So love, listen to me, church, this is important. Love is the byword of the fruits of the Spirit. 
All right, let's turn to Galatians 5.22 and let's just look at the fruit of the Spirit. Love is the byword of the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22. Now, I'm not going to read verse 19, but in verse 19, Paul talks about the works of the flesh. And so there is a contrast going on here. He's contrasting the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And he he tells us in Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then he goes and he makes this statement. He says, against such... There is no law. And so he says, this is the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But there is only one fruit. And what is that? No? Well, it is, yes. But it's the fruit of the Spirit. And so love is encompassing, love is the byword that describes the fruit that God is looking for, that God desires. So what are these other nine things here? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Remember we said a, a tree produces only one kind of fruit, right? An orange tree produces oranges. A peach tree produces peaches. An apple tree produces apples. So we don't have one tree with nine different fruit. We have one tree with one kind of fruit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. But these nine things that are listed here, I call them nine characteristics that describe what the fruit of the Spirit is. In essence, in substance, in, in taste, in flavor, If you eat something, now yesterday, yesterday my wife made a pineapple cobbler. Y'all ever had a, who's ever had, who has never had a pineapple cobbler? I'd never had a pineapple cobbler. Never even heard of a pineapple cobbler. Now I love peach cobbler, but I've never had pineapple cobbler. Now you could, I know what pineapple tastes like. But, but you could try to describe to someone who's never had pineapple or a pineapple cobbler or a cobbler, you, you can describe to somebody what a pineapple cobbler tastes like, but how, do, how many of you understand that until you actually taste it, you're never going to really know what it is, right? You, you can't. You can't just know by describing. And so when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, The fruit of the Spirit is in essence, in substance, in flavor, in taste. It it, it is these nine things. And so, Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Don't just know that the Lord is good. Don't just trust because I tell you the Lord is good. Don't just trust me that pineapple cobbler is really good. You need to taste and see for yourself. 
Don't just come and listen to me week in, week out and tell you how good God is. You need to taste and see, oh man, that God is good. And out of that tasting, you become a man who trusts, who trusts in him. I'm having technical difficulty with my little thing here. It's not staying on my ear right. So taste, what is taste? Taste is to become acquainted with something by experience. So you'll never become acquainted with pineapple cobbler until you taste it. So taste, to taste is to experience. God wants fruit to be manifest through our lives because he wants not only us, but he wants others to experience the fruit of the Spirit described in one word, which is love. What's flavor? Flavor is the characteristic or the predominant quality. Flavor is what gives or provides definition to what is being tasted. How many of you have ever suffered from allergies and you're all stuffed up and you go to eat your favorite food but you can't taste it? It's not much fun, is it? You just don't even feel like eating, do you? I mean, if I can't taste my food, if I can't experience the flavor of my food, then what's the point of eating it? I don't care to eat. So flavor provides definition of what is experienced. When we say the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, that is describing the flavor. That is the flavor that brings definition to the fruit of the Spirit. This is the flavor of God's fruit. Patience is what love tastes like. Self-control is a flavor of this fruit. Goodness and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness. This provides definition and flavor for the fruit of the Spirit. Essence, what is essence? Essence is the individual, real, or ultimate nature of something. God is love. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. 1 John 8, 4, 8. 1 John 4, 16. It says, God is love. God in his very essence is what? Is love. But yet the world says, how could a loving God send anyone to hell? Or how could a loving God allow this to happen or that to happen? Well, See, what we're doing there is we're walking by sight and not walking by faith. We're not understanding who God is in, his, in the very essence of his nature. He is in his very nature, in his very essence, love. The fruit of the Spirit is by nature spiritual. It's not of this world. It's not carnal. Fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, by its very Nature, the essence of it is what? It's spiritual, which means it's nothing that my flesh can produce. You guys understand that, right? The fruit of the Spirit is not what your flesh produces. You might try really hard to be patient. You might try really hard to be kind. And maybe in your trying, you you are somewhat patient and somewhat kind. But I'm telling you what, you can never have true patience, true kindness, true gentleness, true self-control, true goodness, True love, true joy, true peace. Unless it is produced by His Spirit. 
because it's not of the flesh. It's not of this world. By essence, by nature, it is spiritual. It's why it's called the fruit of the Spirit. And what is the substance? Paul says to the Colossians, he says, don't let anyone judge you in food or drink or in Sabbaths or festivals or new moons, for those are only shadows, but Christ is the substance. Christ is the substance, the substance of this fruit, the substance of what we are tasting, of the flavor, of the essence. Christ is the substance. He is the ultimate reality that fills all in all. When you eat real food, you get really full, right? The more you eat, the more full you get. Listen, Christ is not imaginary. He's not some, some notion or some idea or some philosophy or some... No, he is the substance of what God has and is and will always proclaim through creation, through eternity. He is the substance that fills all in all. When we manifest his fruit, which is a manifestation of his life, we are manifesting the substance of who he is, the reality of who he is. God uses our lives so others can taste and see, so they can experience the flavor and quality of his fruit and the nature and reality of Christ, who is our life. This is why, as believers, we must understand that we're not just here waiting to get to heaven one day. We are here because God has placed us here in the midst of our families, in the midst of our friends, in the midst of our enemies, in the midst of of, of everything, our co-workers, our neighbors. He's put us here so that they can taste and experience and witness the manifestation of his life so that they can come to know the flavor and the quality of his fruit, of his nature, of his reality, of his life, which is found where? In Christ. This is why God has commanded us to love and why love is the fulfillment of all. It is. Now, I don't have time today to get into everything, but I'll just say this. In that commandment to love, we also need to have a proper understanding of what love is. And we can't have a proper understanding of what love is unless we know what? Who God is. The world has a definition of love, right? I'll just tell you right now, the world... In, in many ways, looks at the church and says the church is the antithesis of love. There is no love in the church. There's only judgment and condemnation and self-righteousness. And we could, you know, you've heard it all, right? So we can't let the world define love because the world doesn't know what love is. Because who is love? God is love. So if we don't know God, we can't know love. And so our definition of love can't come out of our humanism. It can't come out of our, our desire for goodness. It can't come out of, of, of simple human, you know, our human desire to be good, to do good, to 
It can't, can't come from that. It must come from God. And it must be defined by and understood as it has been revealed in the Scripture. Amen? And so this is really important to not let the world define the terms for you. Remember we said a couple of weeks ago, we've got to be careful to define our terms. Because if we don't define our terms based on the Scripture, then we may adopt a definition that, that is going to not be correct. And who determines what's correct? I don't determine what's correct. God, in His Word, determines what is correct. And so, we've got to grow in the knowledge of God. And if we grow in the knowledge of God, we're going to grow in the knowledge of love. Why? Because God is love. And so, we'll begin to understand that that the very fact that God in His essence is love, there is not a contradiction there. Well, if God is love, how come He let the hurricane come? If God is love, why did He let the buildings fall? If God is love, why did He let the airplane crash? If God is love, why did He let my mother die? My mother died at the end of last month. And though part of me wishes she was still here, the reality is, I'm really thankful that she is with the Lord. She lived a very long life. But what about the person that didn't live a very long life in our definition of the terms? Well, okay, God's love and mercy because he let your very old mother go on to be with him, but what about the person who didn't get to live even half the number of years she lived? God is still love. Because God's not defined by our circumstances and situations. He is defined by the very essence of who He is and what He is. And He is love. And so we've got to reconcile this, church. We've got to reconcile this. And we've got to trust in the very essence and substance and flavor and quality of who He is. So... God has commanded us to love. Now let's turn back over to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So what is the byword for fruit, for spiritual fruit? It is love. Now let's go back to the context of what's happening here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul is bringing correction to this church because this church is operating out of order in terms of their spiritual giftings. And in terms of the way they are interacting with one another. So do you, do you understand that your body interacts with itself, right, all the time? I mean, my, the coordination that allows me to walk, not that I'm super coordinated or anything. I can't dance. But I can walk. And so it takes a level of coordination to be able to walk. It takes a greater level of coordination to be able to, to dance and really say, I can dance, Right? I mean, you all have seen that dancing with the stars. Some of those people can dance and some of those people can't dance, you know. And so uh, it's like American Idol. Some of those people can sing and some of those people can't sing. But it takes coordination. So your body is always interacting with itself. And so here in the Corinthian church, there was an interaction going on within the church that was not good because the interaction was creating friction and division. And Paul says this ought not to be. And so he gets to the 13th chapter and he says, 
at the end of chapter 12, he says, yet I show you a more excellent way. A more excellent way. I, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, if I have not love, I've become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. If I don't have love, it doesn't matter what my abilities or my faith is, I am nothing. If I don't have love, it doesn't matter how many good deeds I do and what I give, it profits me nothing. So then in verse 4, he says, love suffers long and is kind. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely. Love does not seek its own. It's not selfish. Love is not provoked. Love doesn't fly off the handle and just get angry because something didn't go to suit it. Love does not think evil. It doesn't rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things. It holds up under the burden of all things. Love hopes all things. It believes all things. It endures all things. Love never fails. Now, have you ever thought about why Paul wrote this? I mean, if, if love is all of this, it's not just speaking of, I mean, we read this and we always read it in the context of what we're supposed to be, right? We're supposed to be these things. If we are in Christ, if we're believers, then this is what my life is supposed to look like. So I should read this all the time and and this is what my life should, should, should be. Well, I'm not going to disagree with that. That these characteristics and these qualities, these flavors should be present in our life. But this isn't just describing who we are. This is describing, more importantly, who God is. Not just who we are. See, I can try to be this all day long, but if I don't know who God is, if I don't understand who I am in Him, it's going to be very difficult for me to just imitate this. Then I just become a a person who's doing God tricks, and I'm just imitating God. And God wants me to be more than just an imitator of Him. God wants me to be more than just a person who learns how to do really cool God tricks and look like Him and act like Him. It's got to be more than that because I must fundamentally in the very essence and nature and reality of who I am, I must become a partaker of the divine nature. In other words, this has got to become who I am. Not because I always get it right and act that way, but first and foremost that I understand that I have been changed and transformed by the power of his spirit that I have been born again and God has translated me out of darkness and into light that he has taken me out of death a pit so deep so dark so hopeless there was no way for me to get out do you understand that church we were in a pit so deep and so dark there was no way for us to get out except for God. 
but for the grace of God. God in his grace. He didn't wait for me to come down, get up there to him. He didn't lower a ladder down and say, now boy, climb out of that pit. No, listen, he descended from heaven and came into the pit with me. And he lifted me out of that pit and placed my feet on solid ground. That's what he did. That's the grace of God. That's the goodness of God. That's who God is. And not only did he take me out of the pit and place my feet on solid ground, but now he has caused me by his grace to become a partaker of his divine nature. So that now these things that I'm reading, the fruit of the Spirit, all of those characteristics, all of those things, all of what we're reading here in 1 Corinthians are not just things put in the Word of God so that I can now work really hard to try to imitate out of my nature, because that's impossible. Do you hear me, church? That's impossible. That is impossible. But, as I come to know who he is, And as I come to know what has transpired in my salvation, that hopeless Jeff was taken by the grace of God and now given hope. Lifeless Jeff was taken by the grace of God. And now Jeff has the life of the Son of God. I don't even have my own life anymore. I have the life of the Son. How many of you know that's better than having your own life? How many of you know having the life of the Son is better than having your own life? It is. I promise you it is. I mean, God loved me so much, He didn't just give me my life back. He loved me enough to to kill my life and bury my life and raise me up and give me the life of His Son. That's good news. That's good news. Now I am alive together with him in his life. Oh, that's good news, church. And so now God in his grace, he he says, Paul is saying, he said, love. Love is patient. Love is kind. He's saying, guys, this is who God is. You are not reflecting. You are not manifesting. You are not demonstrating the fruit of God. You're demonstrating some carnal nature, some worldly attitude. You're trying to divide and conquer. You're trying to get over on the next guy. You're puffed up. You're proud. You're arrogant. You're self-seeking. You're self-promoting. It's not about the other. It's not about love. It's about all the wrong things. He says, let me show you a more excellent way. Let me show you. Let me remind you of who God is. If God is patient, and we have become a partaker of the divine nature, it stands to reason that we should become patient. 
Now, I'm not saying we, we get it right all the time. I'm not saying it's an automatic thing because it's not, is it? Ask my family, they'll tell you. I'm still growing. But I think we can honestly say as we grow in the knowledge of Christ, as we live this life of faith, as we are growing up into Him in all things, I think we can look at our lives and say, you know what? I have more patience today than I had five years ago or ten years ago. Love is kind. Why? Because God is kind. Love doesn't envy. Why? Because God doesn't envy. What is God going to envy? I mean, do you have anything that God is envious of? (laughs) I don't think so. And if I understand that I have God, that he has given me himself, he has not withheld anything from me, but he has freely given me all things in his son, what possibly could I be envious of? If, If he has given me. Now, if I don't understand what he's given me, if I don't have a revelation of what I have in him and what he has given me, It's very easy for me to be envious, isn't it? Yes, it is. Love doesn't parade itself. Why? Because God doesn't parade itself. Why doesn't God parade himself? Because he doesn't have to. He's already on parade. I mean, his, his invisible attributes are everywhere. He's God. He doesn't have to buy advertising time and and hire marketing people to, to try to get people to notice him. He doesn't have to do that. So if I am in him and he is in me, I am a part of his body. If I'm a, vi- if I'm a branch abiding in the vine, man, he'll, he'll do it all for me, right? I don't have to try to promote God. My very existence in him speaks of who he is. I need to rest in the assurance of that. He's telling the Corinthians here, he says, you guys, if you guys, if you understood who you were in Christ, you wouldn't be parading around trying to promote yourself, trying to be known, trying to be seen. You would just be abiding in him, resting in him, content that you are who he made you to be, functioning where he made you to function, placed right where he wants you to be placed. We could go on. Love's not proud. Why? Because God's not proud. God doesn't. God is just God, right? Do you guys ever think about? I just think of weird things sometimes. I mean, why do people? Why are people proud? Why was pride found in Lucifer? What was Lucifer envious of? He was envious of God, God's position, the worship that was, God was getting. I mean, we, we can look at, at everything that was found in him is like the total opposite of what's here. I mean, it's totally contrary to what, what, is, what Paul is describing here. And when we get like that, I mean, we've all been in situations where we feel insecure, we feel inadequate, and then, you know, there's this syndrome that, you know, we live in what's called the fatherless generation. And sometimes we wonder why. There's so many kids and so many people out there who just do so many things that seem to be so self-destructive. 
And a lot of times, it, it's, it's, from this, it's from these feelings of inadequacy. And they feel inadequate because they've, they've never had the right role model. They've never had the right proper relationship and interaction. And so what happens, man, they're going out there doing all these crazy things, trying to be known, trying to be seen, trying to prove something to somebody. Listen, if you understand who God is and who you are in God, the life of Christ in you, know this today, church, you don't have anything to prove to anybody. You don't have to prove anything to the world. You don't have to prove anything to anybody. You don't. The Corinthian church felt like they had something to prove, and so you had all these people trying to prove something, and Paul is saying, you guys don't have anything to prove. You just need to rest in Christ. You need to understand who he is. This is who God is. This is the very essence and nature and substance of God. This should be what your life manifests and what your life portrays. Stop behaving rudely because God's not rude. Stop being selfish because God's not selfish. Stop seeking your own. Stop being provoked so easily because things don't go the way you want them to go or the way you think they should go. Stop doing that. If you're trusting the Lord, then trust that whatever happens, however it goes, just trust that God will work it all out. Now, I know that's easier said than done. I struggle with that myself. And I have to remind myself, you know what? I just, have, I just have to trust God. I can't go back and unscramble eggs. I can't go back and put the spilt milk back in the bottle. So I'm going to have to trust that God knows how to work all these things together for good. In the little picture of my broken eggs and spilled milk, all the way out to the big, gigantic picture of human history in this time-space continuum. That, that God, God's got it all under control, even if I don't, because <laughs> I don't, and neither do you. So stop trying and just trust God. God doesn't think any evil because there is no evil in him, so why should we think evil? God doesn't rejoice in iniquity. Why, those dirty sinners, man, they got what they deserved. Listen. There are people that will get what they deserve, but it's not going to be because God is rejoicing in it. He doesn't rejoice in iniquity. God rejoices rather in what? In the truth. And the truth is God is love, and even in the very essence of him being love, there is a judgment. And in truth, there will be those who will fall under the judgment of God, but that does not change who God is, and the essence and the nature of who He is. Jesus Christ being the Savior, and Jesus Christ being the one who will come and judge the world is not a contradiction. The same Jesus that will save you from hell is the same Jesus that will condemn you to hell. And, and that's not a contradiction. And it's not contrary to His love. It's not. That doesn't make sense for us and a lot of people. 
always. But see, I'm not called to try to make sense of things in my own mind. I'm called to either trust this word or not. Amen? But I can rejoice because I know that God in His grace, even though I deserve judgment, I deserve condemnation, I didn't get what I deserved. I don't have today what I deserve. I have been given the grace of God, the love of God. I have been given life in the Son. And, and, and God's grace did that. So I rejoice in that. I rejoice in that truth. Love bears all things. There's not anything too big for God. Now you might say, I just can't bear this. Well, stop trying. You're right. You can't bear it. Paul is not saying love bears all things so that you can man up and, and carry it a little farther down the road. He's saying, look, are you trusting God? Love bears all things. This is who God is. And if you're trusting in Him, then He will bear this burden. And in Him, therefore, you also can and will bear this. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. In the face of, of, of seeming hopelessness, in the face of, of, of utter darkness, in the face of, I don't know how in the world this is going to work out, in the face of that, love believes all things. God is never rattled. God doesn't get stressed out. God doesn't sit there sweating BBs trying to figure out how he's going to make this all work out for good. Man. I mean, that, that's, we don't consciously necessarily think that, but, but the way we think, God would have to be up in heaven just totally reacting to everything that we're doing in the world. Do you know that's not who God is? God's not up in heaven. His job is not to react to everything you do. He's in far more control than that. He's not reacting to anything you're doing. That's our mentality. God is in control. Totally and completely. He has been from the very beginning and He will be throughout eternity. Totally and completely in control. There is not one time that God is reacting to something that I'm doing. Now what am I going to do? Oh boy, I just didn't, didn't think he would do that. So now I'm going to have to... No. No way. See, I can believe all things. Why? Because I know who's in control. Because I'm not putting my faith in, in myself. I'm putting my faith in the one who is Lord of lords and King of kings, who is the Lord of all who is the creator of heaven and earth, who put time in motion, who put the planets and the galaxies and everything out there, who created not only the angels, but the demons. I mean, he, he's, he's in control of everything. So I'm going to put my trust in him because this is, who, this is who he is. So in him, in that reality of who he is by nature, his very essence, I can believe all things. 
Because I'm not walking by sight. I'm walking by faith. And my faith is in Him. Love hopes all things. What is hope? Paul tells us in Romans 8. He says this. In verse 24. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? Hope is about what we don't see. But just because we don't see it doesn't mean it's not real. Doesn't mean it's not true. That's why love hopes all things. Love is not based on, God is not based on what we can see. Amen? Love endures all things. There is nothing that will outlast or wear down or wear out the love of God. Because there is nothing that will outlast or wear down God. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He never fails. In His fruit in us, guess what? It also will what? Never fail. Psalm 1, blessed is the man. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water whose leaf never fails, never withers. And always, always, always brings forth fruit. When? In due season. So if you're out there in the dead of winter wondering why there's no fruit on your tree, the problem is not with your tree. You understand that, right? The problem is with your discernment of time and seasons. And we need to understand that there are times and seasons in God But here's the promise. In him, we will always, always, always bring forth fruit in due season. Why? Because he created the seasons. He set them in motion and he knows when the fruit's going to come forth. And he's the good tree of the good root of the good stock. The father's the vine dresser. So I guarantee you when the season comes, so is the fruit. It will. And if you go through multiple seasons with no fruit, then we need to do what Paul told these Corinthians. He said, you need to examine yourself and see whether you be in the faith. Because we're not called to be Christians in name only. You're not going to get there by being a Christian in name only. But you will. By identifying with his death on the cross, his burial, and allowing him to raise you up in the life of the Son. And Paul goes on. In verse 8. He says, love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. What's he saying there? This is not an argument for the cessation of spiritual gifts. This is not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, listen. Keep the main thing the main thing. The point of our life in Christ is not so we can have gifts. The point of our life in Christ is so that the Father can be glorified through our fruitfulness. Because 
Gifts are a sign of God's grace. Remember I said this? They speak of gifts indicate one thing, fruit indicates another thing. Gifts indicate the grace of God, but fruit indicates what? Maturity. And Jesus said in John 15, he said, By this my Father receives glory. He is glorified because you bear much fruit. And fruit is an indicator of our maturity in Christ. It's also an indicator of the life of Christ in us. If he's in me, and I'm in him. If I'm a branch abiding in the true vine, I will produce fruit. That's the promise of God. And so this love is an indicator. So Paul says, listen, all these other things will fail. They'll fail. They'll pass away. Because that's not the enduring thing. The enduring thing is the life of Christ. It's, it is the fruit. It is the manifestation, the very substance of who Christ is. That will never fail. That will never pass away. That is what is kind, is content, is not proud, not selfish, not provoked, not evil. That is the thing that rejoices in the truth, the thing that, that bears up under all things, that believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It is that nature, that character, that reality that manifestation of his life and his substance, that will never fail. It will never fail. And you can never fail and you can never go wrong by allowing that reality and that manifestation to be known in you and through you. It is the sign of his life. I'm going to stop right there. I know you guys probably can't believe it. It's like 10 till 12. But here's the thing, I really want to, I want to take some time and I want to finish the rest of 1 Corinthians 13. And, and what, I, what I want to share and what I want to get into, I can't do it in 10 minutes. And so it, rather than just trying to rush through the rest of this, we're going to save this and we're going to, we're going to pick up at verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 13 next Sunday morning. And we're going to continue and we're going to, we're going to go on to the end of this chapter. And specifically, I want to deal with this statement Paul makes at the end of the chapter. In, in, in verse 13, he says, Now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. I want to deal with that reality, that truth, that love is the greatest, and, and understanding why the greatest of these is love. Amen? Well, I have a little bit of time here. I just would ask, is there anyone here?